good. Okay. G'day guys, you are here with Jacob Skeppers from JPS on episode three of the JPS podcast series. And today we have a very special guest, Mr. Ian McCarthy. And Ian is the owner of Lifting for Life and No Bullshit Bodybuilding and is one of the great young minds in the fitness industry. In essence, Ian has led the push for evidence-based bodybuilding practices within the broader bodybuilding and lifting community and made a name for himself as the institutional hater uh, for misinformation and pseudoscience. Isn't that right, Ian? I'll take it. You'll take it? (laughs) And he's known for his critical thinking ability, online debating prowess, as well as his innate talent to piss others off, especially Lyle McDonald. So welcome, Ian. Glad to be here. I appreciate the very welcoming introduction. I thought you might. I put a bit of effort into that one. So, Ian, today I wanted to talk to you about a number of things, critical thinking more specifically, and then as that relates to bodybuilding, training, nutrition, and how we take literature and evidence, critically evaluate that and apply it in a practical sense, which is something I think you've done extremely well throughout your short career. Um in the industry. And one of the first questions I wanted to ask you, Ian, um, which is the same question that you asked Eric in your recent interview was, what is your internal dialogue? What goes through the mind of Ian Brown McCarthy? Well, I think it's a really interesting question. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently. You know, can can you even really teach critical thinking? I think Mm. to a large extent, it's either there or not. And as funny as this might sound, from a very, very early age, my default was really to say no and mm. to disagree with the predominant opinion. And I don't think that was trained. That was just present. Mm. And that, by the way, can be very problematic because if there are things that you need to do and you simply don't want to do them, if you actually do need to do that which some authority figure wants you to do, etc. So people like me get in trouble in school and yeah. so on. For sure. Um, but it, But again, I don't think that I did something to get that. I think I've been able to refine it through practice and through making mistakes. I think in wanting to, you know, frame this in a way that it might actually benefit someone listening to this, I think what it really comes down to is not taking everything at face value Mm. and instead considering it and trying to find holes in it. Indeed, even what I'm saying right now, I would encourage people not to simply say, okay, Ian is this guy who has this reputation as being a debater and thinking critically, so I'll just take this as this is the advice. Rather, take it and try it, see if it works for you, see if it holds up, and maybe it doesn't. Mm. And again, I, I would apply that here and into everything. So again, I think that's about the extent to which one can, I think that's the best general suggestion as to what you do in practice. Mm. I'd be glad to get more in-depth to specific cases. Yeah, Uh, we'll definitely get into that. So something that Eric mentioned to me when I interviewed him a few days back was he he truly believes that people can change. Um, Mm -hmm. And relating that to what you said in terms of you either do have the ability to critically think or not, um, let's take, for instance, that people can't change and people can't learn how to critically think. You know, we know that we don't want to be somebody's guru and have them just take what we say, you know, as face value and we want them to think about it and, you know, critically evaluate it. But in the instance that somebody can't critically think, 
are they better off taking our advice and just following suit as opposed to taking somebody else's advice who doesn't critically evaluate the literature and so forth? Right. So I'm not sure I would want to go as far as to say that, and by the way, this isn't a criticism of you, but just the idea that some people can't critically think. Rather, I wanted to speak to the fact that I think it's largely inborn. Mm. You know, I it's some, again, it's something I think a lot about. You know, everyone grants that something like height is heavily influenced by genetics. Yeah. Um, intelligence would probably be similar. Maybe you know, less people would agree with that, but I think that's that's there as well. And even things like personality traits and and how you approach. Uh, the way that you think about what other people say, but again, I don't, I'm not sure I would want to say that some people can't critically think. Rather, some people's default is to believe that other people are telling the truth. Mm. Uh, you know, if someone says something, yeah. it's just true. And what's interesting is that can yield a really pleasant and kind person. Mm. But oftentimes, those are the people who, to be blunt, and I, I'm not sure if you allow profanity, but those people can get fucked. Yeah. Those are the people who, if they just see someone who's attractive and charming and who's selling them something for $700 that, that does absolutely nothing, um, they might fall for that as mm. a function of they don't think people are dishonest. Yeah. You know, they, they don't yeah. think people are out okay. to get them and so on. So uh, rather... So, so again, I would, I would, I'm not sure. I would say people can't critically think. Rather, I think we have different starting points. Ability and, on a broad spectrum. Yeah. Right. So for some people, it's it's more or less there, and for other mm. people, they will have to really practice it. And maybe what that means is they'll be disappointed. They will really look up to someone, and they'll make certain claims, and then they go, then they actually find out down the road that they're incorrect, and. That will be the lesson which teaches them. Oh, I need to be more questioning than I've been. Um, what was? I'm not sure. I re recall what the question was. To be honest. Um, oh, should should those people just find someone who seems trustworthy and, and more or less yes, listen to them? Is that the? I think there's a gray area here. Right. I something I've said in the past is. You know, don't assume that something is true because Eric Helm says it, because yeah. Eric and Alan Aragon and James Krieger and Brad Schoenfeld, they all say it. And one of the objections which has been brought up to me, which I think is a very reasonable objection, is, well, if they all agree, like, really what is the likelihood that yeah. it isn't true? And again, I appreciate that, and I would say it's unlikely so I do think that in practice, look, if there's someone out there who fitness is not their life, rather they work a nine to five, they're married, they have three children, they train three, four days a week, you know, their workouts are an hour long, you know, they want to make progress, mm. but it's basically like they want to be healthy, they don't want to look fat, you know, it might be as yeah. simple as that. Um, then, yes, I think in practice it's probably reasonable for that person to more or less pay attention to folks like Eric, Greg Knuckles, etc. And, you know, apply toward that the time and energy they can in terms of thinking about it critically. Yes. But yeah, there comes a point where you just can't expect everyone to yeah. read two full texts a day. Okay. Like that would, that might literally mean that that's the time that they're not spending cooking dinner for their kids. Like, yeah. what are you talking about? 
so yes, I, I'm very. I do try to be pragmatic and, mm. and um, recognize that not all not all people. You know, again, fitness isn't everyone's life. It's not the primary thing that they're focused on. So I wouldn't expect every person to live the life of a researcher. Yeah, for sure. And you know, you strike me as one of few people in our industry who actually do, um, you know, think a lot about you know what is being said and you know the different ideas, topics, and opinions, and you break them down quite well and come to your own informed conclusions as to what you think and believe and do and do not do. But a lot of people simply regurgitate information from their gurus, right? Um, right. And did you find that it was your background in debating that helped you do this? Well, I would first say for the sake of transparency that this is something that I have done in the past. Mm. No question. There are things where I'm able to see in hindsight that essentially what I was doing was regurgitating from uh, from different people. It kind of depends on, on when we're thinking. Um, so, and, and I would note that I, I'm definitely seeing this. Like, as an example, and I'll speak very frankly, and this, this is no critique of Mike Isratel, but I have perceived, you know, I've noticed what I perceive as pretty hardcore regurgitation of his MRV concept and again that's not a criticism of him mm. I, I actually I think it's a good concept I think it's useful I, I don't think it's you know Mike Isratel made up uh, colon cleansing or something but I do see people using almost exact phrases that he uses but they're not quoting him that it just really strikes mm. me as a regurgitation like it, it's just they've read this and then they say almost exactly the same thing, um, and that, again, that, that's concerning to me, and I've seen that in other contexts as well. Again, I find myself not remembering the question. I'm sorry. I have very severe uh, ADD, so it's not my fault. <laughs> um, the question was, did your debating um, help you critically evaluate ideas, concepts, and topics? Was that something that you found useful in terms of critically thinking? Again, I, I think I would return to it's largely been there with regard to, you know, there is this meme I've noticed online of Ian has this background in debating. Um, I don't have any debate training. I didn't mm. do it in school or anything like this. Rather, I do think it was the natural result of defaulting typically to disagreeing. And, yeah. and I've always surrounded myself, not by construct, just it happens naturally, with uh, people who often disagree with me. So my, I think that's always been true. I, I've always had close friends who are very willing to disagree with me and, and I with them and, and we're able to maintain mutual respect, which is very important because for a lot of people it, it just doesn't work. Mm. It gets too personal. And again, there's definitely an aspect of practice to that as well. Yeah. Um, I think Probably the two things I have most improved have been my ability to be objective and also my ability to be more respectful in debate because I have realized that, indeed, I was actually, I didn't read the study, but I was reading an article about a study last night talking about how in, in one particular study it was demonstrated that radical agreement was the most effective means of changing the minds of others. In other words, 
more or less agreeing with everything they're saying um, in that we understand that there's a psychological response of if you attack someone's views, that can be perceived as an attack on them, and it, it results in someone's existing viewpoint becoming increasingly ingrained. So it is very important to me at this point that, for example, if you were to say to me, and I mean, who knows, maybe you would, that you, know, you, you think training each uh, body part once a week is the way to go. My, you know, one option would be to say, well, you're a fucking moron. Like, do you even read literature, bro? <laughs> and, and that, you know, you might be extremely mature and be able to take that and there wouldn't be an issue. But I think a better option would be, that's really interesting. Let's have a discussion about that. You know, I re- you seem a reasonable guy. I don't think you just got there arbitrarily. I'm curious to know what your reasons are. And, and that's almost universally way more productive. And, and the result is that um, if one person or the other is wrong, the person who is wrong is typically more able to acknowledge that. Yeah. And and if there's just disagreement that's not going to go away, at the very least you're able to, to flesh that out and explore it. That was one of my uh, questions later on. But seeing as though it seems very fitting to ask you this question sure. now, have you matured since you first got into the industry? No, definitely not. Uh, no, yes, I think so. I think <laughs> that that your 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 response and the last two minutes of conversation highlights to me that you have significantly. <laughs> right, definitely. It, like the way I put it to folks in person when it comes up, and this is this is a very like laughably um, what would be the word I would use here, but. I, I honestly think it has a lot to do with the degree of development of the prefrontal cortex, which is involved in impulse control. Like, I honestly think this is a big deal. It's, that's not a process, to my knowledge, that's a process which, process which isn't complete until the late 20s in males, and I think that's probably yeah. a bit, you know, it's funny, I can't take credit for that. I think, because, because a lot of the I think the, the way I think on a, on a very visceral level, you know, the totally unfiltered thoughts that you just have, like mm-hmm. whether it's you see something on social media or, or someone does something stupid on television or whatever it is. I mean, that's largely the same, and, and I'm better able now to, to recognize that just blurting out everything is not the way to go in life. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and again, wanting to... You know, recognizing that the objective isn't identify the bro science and destroy the bro science. Yeah. I made a post about this on a status on, on Facebook about this recently, talking about how, you know, producing content with the objective being mm. helping people, I believe, yeah, I be uh, more honorable than, again, you know, identifying the misinformation and blowing it up because. The way some people operate, I genuinely wonder, and hey, I get, again, to be transparent, I think that this thought could be directed toward what I was doing five or six years ago. Mm. I wonder if they actually even care about, I mean, really care about improving other people's lives, mm. or if it's like a gigantic ego trip yeah. Yeah, sure. of... You know, this, that, and the other person who's promoting this view, which is actually incorrect, they're a fucking moron. Yeah, yeah. science. And I would grant that 
if you are technically correct, that's of significance. Mm. Like if someone is extremely nice and wrong about everything, there's a problem. But similarly, if someone is usually technically correct, but just very explosive and disrespectful in their general approach to discourse, then, then that's also yeah. profoundly problematic in my opinion. Mm, for sure. And something I've been wanting to ask you, Ian, was you know, how did you fall into the fitness industry? Because you're quite an interesting case. You know, most people who get to the stature that you know you have and to be in a position of, I guess, you know, uh, authority as you and you know, lifting for life are, you know, typically go through you know a certain discourse of you know like coaching. You know, they've either competed as a natural bodybuilder, powerlifter, achieved a number of milestones, and you know accomplishments and then it's like okay 10 years in the in the trenches and coaching and whatnot we'll start listening to you you know you were almost you bypassed a lot of that you know to a large degree how did you go about that well so to go all the way back i originally got into how the hell did you do it Ian? <laughs> yeah well i mean so to be very direct, I mean, it was a lot to do with just the drama initially. <laughs> um, numerous people have said, you know, I only, numerous people have said things like they only even got into evidence-based fitness at all. They didn't even know of the concept prior to the video I made about the Hodge twins. Yeah. It's, it's a bit hard to process because that's not something that I would do now, mm. but from a very consequentialist kind of perspective of, you know, ends justify the means. Like if it, if you benefited thousands of people, then it kind of doesn't matter. Um, then one might say it was worth it. But I, I think that was it. I think it was a lot of that throughout really kind of from the beginning. I mean, I originally created my YouTube channel because I didn't know of YouTube fitness. I stumbled upon it. I saw people putting out content, which was, in my mind, very clearly, really bad. Mm. Not just, you know, I disagree with them some somewhat because look, I mean, like, I can't think of examples off the top of my head, but I know that Eric, as someone who I think is one of the very best in the industry, has said things with which I disagree. That's not what I mean. I mean, just really mm. bad content. And I saw this, and I was like, okay, if people are, are putting this kind of thing out and they're successful, then I, I could give it a shot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So again, from the beginning, it was a response to my perception of really bad recommendations being put out. And that was right from 2011. And then things really blew up in 2012, 2013. And interestingly, that correlated really strongly with the rise of YouTube fitness generally. Yeah. And it's interesting to see how 2009, 2010, 2011-ish, no one that I know of was talking about flexible dieting, at least on YouTube, other mm. than maybe 3DMJ, uh, and, and I don't want to take credit away from them. Like, If you go back to really old videos on the 3DMJ channel, they were probably talking about flexible dieting back then, yeah. but at the same time, they had a much smaller platform than they do now, and then I, I think the stuff I put out was... I think it would have happened anyway, but it was probably the trigger for that huge shift mm. in views toward flexible dieting happening then. And we've now gotten to the point where, and I realize this is far away from your question, but 
Yeah, where flexible dieting is almost a cliche. It's yeah. almost like one of the things we assume and, and don't talk about. So, so yeah, again, it, the approach that I used then is not one that I would use now, but yeah. it, it resulted in that uh, exposure. And then I do think that over the past two years or so in taking a very different approach, I've developed a reputation I didn't have and so I have had people say, I've had people say, I saw your stuff then, I hated you, and then I didn't pay attention, and then I came back two or three years later, and then I saw a different person, and I like you now. Yeah, for sure. Um, and do you have any formal qualifications? Um, no. No, yeah. And do you see the value in fitness qualifications, or do you see no value in it? I think it's very context dependent. I I endeavor to take a very uh, neutral and objective perspective on this. You know, it's really like you've probably practically anyone who is any kind of fitness professional who has you know access to the internet <laughs> and sees what's happening on social media probably sees the rise of the school is a scam, etc. perspective. Yeah. And so that's one perspective, and then there's also the perspective of, you know, qualifications are extremely important. Scientific elitism is a, a phrase which comes to mind with me frequently of people who, like, if someone doesn't have a scientific degree, they essentially don't matter to them. So I think that they, I think, let's say someone has a PhD in something relating to fitness. If absolutely nothing else, it does tell you that that person spent a huge amount of time studying that subject and put in a lot of work and did original research. I mean, we, we, we know the minimum, you know, the, the least that one has to do to achieve that. It's not nothing. So when I see people and I see people frequently saying, degree's just a piece of paper, it doesn't mean anything, that's I just... I don't know how one can say that. I really don't know how one can say that. At the same time, I wouldn't say that if someone has a PhD or if someone has a master's or whatever it might be, that necessarily means that they're extremely intelligent, knowledgeable, objective, etc. And so unfortunately, we simultaneously have the problem of people who have no qualifications and on top of not having qualifications, they're not intelligent and they're not very knowledgeable. And they're putting out content, and they might have reach as a function of you know, getting on a platform early or the way they look or something like this. They might be putting out misinformation. And we simultaneously have the issue of people who have qualifications but are putting out misinformation. So does that answer your question? Yeah. I, again, I, I, I endeavor to approach it not from the perspective of, yeah. I don't have qualifications, so, oh, they all got to suck. Yeah. And, and, and uh, similarly, I wouldn't, I, I do think they can tell you a lot about a person. And I do think all else being equal, if someone has a degree versus not, that would, it would be reasonable to take that person's uh, advice more seriously. But... Do you endeavor to get any yeah, qualifications? I think I will. I, I feel that it's something I need to do. That it would, I would be you know, really leaving something on the table if I were to not do it. Yeah. 
Interestingly, though, I have... I'm not sure if five years ago I, I would think that I can... that it's possible to learn as much as I have in the absence of getting a degree. Yeah. Sure. I mean, it's really... We are tremendously fortunate as a function of, really, the Internet. I mean, the fact that the amount of information just freely available. Mm. You know, people will ask me, you know, where do you find stuff? Just go, like, and I, I don't mean this to be condescending, mm. by the way. I don't I don't expect everyone to know how to do this, but it's remarkable. You can literally go to Google and type in Stu Phillips Research Gate, and just, you have a light, really, like, a lifetime of research just there. Yeah. So, uh, good stuff. And how did you fall into lifting? Um, it's common knowledge that at an earlier age you suffered from anorexia nervosa. And what drew you to lifting weights? Well, my, my physician at the time more or less told me directly that if I had con continued doing what I was doing, I would die, which uh, I think was... Uh, helpful uh, message to, you know, it had some, had some informative content. And so that was a light bulb moment for me. And I realized that, wow, that like, interesting, interesting, anorexia. I can actually anorexia. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? Yes. Uh, he was. The echo. No, not on my end. Okay. We'll see. So I was going to say that I definitely hear an echo, a strong one. Um, there's nothing on my end. Might you have headphones? Wait. Okay, it's gone. It's good. Never mind. Oh, Aliens. <laughs> so I was going to say that I first and foremost conceive of anorexia nervosa as a mental illness. Mm -hmm. um, and, and despite the disordered thinking that was involved in that for me, it was very, you know, when that was said to me, I didn't bullshit my way out of it. I knew that it was the truth. So I knew that I needed to change the way I was doing things. And, and so I knew that I needed to gain weight. And one thought I had was, and there was definitely some disordered thinking still involved in this, but I knew enough to know that there is a, a real phenomenon of people becoming overweight after suffering from anorexia. Yeah. Because if someone's suffering from anorexia and very underweight, the immediate objective is to refeed them very aggressively, mm. just get them back up to a healthy weight. And I don't want to say very often, but often enough that, again, it's a known phenomenon. People will uh, rebound too much and they end up being genuinely overweight. And that was something that I, again, through a distorted lens, desired to... Avoid. avoid. So I had the thought of, okay, so I'll eat the food that I need to eat and I'll also lift weights. Okay. Now that was early, mid-2007. I really got into lifting seriously early 2008. And since January 2008, I've never taken more than two weeks off of training. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, interesting to hear that that led you to lifting weights. But do you draw, if any, parallels between anorexia nervosa and orthorexia nervosa um, in bodybuilding? 
Um, and is there any true difference, you know, between being obsessed with always getting bigger and then being obsessed with always getting smaller? I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's an interesting question. So I would first note that I'm not a professional in the field of psychology. So I doubt anyone was under that misapprehension, but just for the record. Um, so the interesting thing, a few thoughts about orthorexia. Uh, to my knowledge, this was a term created by uh, one gentleman who runs a website that is incredibly nonspecific. It's been a long time since I've looked at this, but I'm pretty confident it's not in the DSM. It's not recognized as a as an eating disorder, whereas anorexia is unquestionably yeah. one. Um, so I I think that his thesis is or was that we see enough commonalities in in thinking and behavior to say you know between what he calls orthorexia and anorexia to say this is probably actually a, a mental illness or an eating disorder, mm-hmm. um, similar to anorexia. And coming at it purely from the perspective of my own experience, my own experience and, and talking to others about this and, and content I've seen online, there are definitely people who don't pathologically endeavor to get smaller or weigh less, but who clearly have disordered thinking relating to eating. Mm. You know, so they might be, they might actually be physically very healthy, healthy weight, above average muscle mass, strong, good cardiovascular shape, etc. Whereas with someone who suffers from anorexia nervosa severely, I mean, it literally kills people. Yeah. Yeah. Quite literally, their hearts fail. So they might not have those apparent physical symptoms, but they might be completely unwilling, I mean completely unwilling, to eat anything outside the scope of their usual whatever it might be. It might be two meals a day, it might be six, it might be the only vegetable they will eat is broccoli, etc. And if someone is inflexible to that degree, I think if I had to say, yes, that's either an eating disorder or not, I would say that it is. And it is very important to recognize that that's quite different from someone's in contest prep and for 24 weeks they've committed to, let's say, for 24 weeks they're not going to travel. For 24 weeks they're always going to train at the same gym because they want everything to be consistent. For 24 weeks they're always going to wake up at the same time because they want their, they want their circadian rhythm to be consistent. For 24 weeks they are actually always going to eat five meals a day. Uh, because they, their best judgment is that's the best means of achieving ideal protein distribution. All of that and more, it could be 20 things like that. Someone could totally rationally commit to all of those things, and then, the, and then immediately after the show, because they've been so committed and, and so rigid and people around them have probably been negatively affected by that, immediately after the show they have no problem going to IHOP and getting pancakes. Yeah. They're fine. Yeah. That's totally like even if the behavior looks super similar, the the, the thinking behind it right. is radically different. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And one of your biggest criticisms, I guess, when you first started, you know, distributing content back in oh eight, was it? Oh eight, oh nine? Two really two thousand eleven. Yeah. When you first started um, putting content out, 
was that, you know, you don't even, bro, like, you don't lift. Like, who are you to say that we should lift like this because, you know, I'm bigger than you and all the rest of it. But from what I've seen over, you know, the, the time frame that's uh, lapsed is that you've made some pretty good gains. Some pretty impressive... I appreciate you saying so. You've made some pretty impressive gains. And what I'd like to ask you is, what was your starting weight when you first, day one, picked up weights, and now? I think I was 104 pounds. What's was, that, like I was, 47 uh, kilos? Yeah, it's... Okay, so for one thing, this is many, many years ago now, so I'm probably misremembering, but I do remember... I vividly remember that my... The lowest weight to which I got when I was anorexic was 44 kilos, because we were in France, so, hey, you know, pretty much the whole world uses metric. Um, so it was 44 kilos, which I think is 94 pounds, and so, you know, a real shame I couldn't get below that, obviously. Um, but, yeah, 44 kilos, and then there was a period in which I refed, I mean, it was literally like ten to 15,000 calories per day. Without lifting, I think I kind of settled at about 10 pounds heavier than that. And I was, I, I really don't know what this is in, in uh, centimeters or meters, but I was 5'7 at the time. So not much shorter than I am now. Mm. And so I think I started lifting consistently. Yeah, so I was about 104, and then I, I did like lifting at home, stuff like this, for about six months. And then by the time I really started actually going to the gym almost every day kind of thing, I was, I was I think, 117 pounds, and then now I'm 173 or something. So there's a you know, small difference between that. Um, is that what you were thinking, like right from the yeah, beginning yeah, yeah. or, or yeah. when I was putting out content initially? No, 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 from start to now. Yeah, that's sure. so. Seventy pounds is around thirty kilos. Not a math major. Yeah, me neither. I'm um, so not good at <laughs> my head like that. But something I want to note because I, I don't want it to not be addressed is I do think a lot of that weight would have been gained just as a function of eating. going from yeah. being fourteen to you know twenty three. Yeah. Let's say I hadn't lifted at all in that period. I think a lot of that weight would have been gained. So I am, I'm not going to claim uh, yeah. that right now I would be 117 or 104 pounds if not for lifting. But I do think that it, it's not tenable to say that it, you know this is all just natural growth. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, something that happens with most, I guess, you know, figures in the fitness industry, experts, authorities, whatever you want to call them is, that there's a certain level of expectation and pressure placed on, you know, um, us as leaders in the fitness industry to look a certain way, produce content, always be doing, you know, the right things and so forth. Have you experienced in your time in the fitness industry, you know, that that pressure became too much and you felt burnt out? Yeah. Definitely early 2015. Yeah. I, I put out a video about uh, exercise selection, talking about why I believe that some really popular exercises like bench press, I think deadlifts, were, were overrated and suggestions that I would make instead. And that just created 
overwhelming drama. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of critical comments. And something that's true of me, whether this is good or bad, it's just how I am. It's, I'm, I'm not... I'm not someone who can see all that and say, who gives a shit? Just totally ignore it. Like that, just out of principle, I feel like if, if I were to say to you, yeah, I think everyone has to train every body part at least three days a week. And you were to say, well, I disagree. I don't feel like just be like, that's nice, bro. Next topic. Right. And so I, I you know, it was hugely stressful at the time. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back in the sense that that had happened many times prior. And I, I had this moment of recognition that I was deeply unhappy with the way things were playing out. So I completely stopped YouTube at that point, took almost all of my videos down, and I don't recall exactly what I was thinking, but I might have been intent on just not even coming back at all mm. and then I guess uh, uh, almost exactly a year later starting probably six months later I started feeling a pull of what am I doing this is what I've done traditionally I'm really like to use the phrase I used earlier I'm leaving you know I could be doing something with this that would be beneficial to people and I'm not doing it because I found you know, the result of it very unpleasant in the past. And so again, I started feeling that probably about six months later and then about a year later in creating Lifting for Life LLC, I was just like, okay, I got to do this. Put a new video up. Response was overwhelmingly positive. And then you know, put things up kind of inconsistently throughout last year, and I'm getting better about it. Yeah, and what are some things that you've, I guess, adopted to make sure that that doesn't happen again? Like, how have you changed your perception of your role in the industry to ensure that you don't feel that pressure? Well, to give a very specific example, and this, your, your question can be answered more broadly, but I think this is a good example. Um, I am more or less completely unwilling to put anyone's name other than mine or someone I'm interviewing in the title of a video because even if the video is absolutely jam-packed with the most incredible informative content and I'm not by the way saying that that's true of my content like what I'm saying even if, if it were the best video ever made on YouTube but it's in response to someone else. The immediate visceral response is clickbait, yeah. trying to get attention. And I'm sure many, if not most, if not everyone watching slash listening to this knows of people who more or less just do this, honestly. Yeah. And I'm very averse to that. I, and I recognize it's what I did in the past, but at this point it's... Um, I've actually had people ask me directly, like, will you make a video about this thing that this person said? And, and even if that thing that that person said is total nonsense, it's like, I might talk about the, the topic, yeah. but I'm not going to make a video with their, with their name in it. Um, additionally, I think my general, general approach is much more uh, nuanced now. 
So instead of making a video saying exercise selection mistakes, this is why I think you shouldn't do deadlifts, I might say this is why I generally recommend Romanian deadlifts instead of conventional deadlifts in hypertrophy training. So it's less, uh, really, I think more people positive. are simply less likely to uh, disagree with it because the claims are more modest. Yeah. So that's why with someone like Eric Helms, there's practically no drama. Because, you know, because Eric doesn't come out and say this is shit. He says, you know, based on my reading of the literature, I'd say, you know, that's one option to just follow you, etc. Yeah. So, you know, like, who would, would see anything he says and think, I don't know, this is obviously nonsense. Yeah, that's fashion. So, yeah. And you mentioned um, Romanian deadlifts versus deadlifts for hypertrophy. And we know that the primary driver of hypertrophy is, you know, total training volume. Um, what are your interpretations of the literature for, you know, devising a hypertrophy program? I'd like to pick your brain a little bit about that as we get into some bodybuilding-related uh, discussion. Absolutely. I think, first of all, there's a question of what it is we mean by volume. Off the top of my head, I know of uh, volume load, which does seem to be the standard in the literature, which is just sets, reps, load. My sense is that that's used because it's perhaps the simplest means of designing studies. I know that a similar but arguably refined version of that is sets, reps, load, percentage, one rep max. To my knowledge, that was proposed by Mike Zordos. I'm not sure if it's actually in uh, any of the literature yet, but I know that the, the concept's out there. There's also set volume, which is number of working yeah. sets. And also number of reps um, is an approach taken. Um, I think Eric Helms, I'm not sure if the approach, I would say often uses that. I, like for hypertrophy programs, yeah. I've seen him say things like, I think it's 40 to 70 reps per workout. Yeah. Gosh, it's been a really long time. Yeah, no, that's correct. That's, that's in the one of those as well. Yeah. Um, so, I typically, I think for hypertrophy training, given it's more or less uncontroversial that most of what you do should be, you know, Eric just said it to me last night, um, RP 6 to 9, 8 to 12 reps. Um, so, like, moderately high RPE is moderately heavy load. Um, a, a set is more or less a set. So, I think a number of working sets is generally the best metric. So, in designing a program generally, I mean, you really want to start with what is it the person's trying to accomplish? How many days a week can they train and for how long? I mean, those things are, are huge and not talked about probably because they're so important they're unstated. Yeah. And then beyond that, I look to frequency, generally favoring higher frequencies. I think two times a week frequency is basically a minimum unless there's something that you're really deliberately trying to deprioritize or perhaps someone has a really low uh, work and or recovery capacity. So that might be appropriate. And then scale up from there. So I, I do a lot of three times per week, so six, six training days of lower uppers. I think that that can be a really good option for folks who maybe won't be able to tolerate frequent full bodies, but it gives them 50% more frequency than a typical lower upper. And um, you definitely want to look at volume in terms of 
a num- you have to look at it a number of different ways. Total volume meaning everything the person is doing in a week, can they tolerate it? Can they recover from it? Can they improve upon it? Also on a body part basis and over a week, but even more so workout by workout. You know, so something I think about a lot you know, when designing programming and talking about programming is number of working sets per body part per workout yeah. and then a way to modulate total volume is frequency. Mm. So instead of, and obviously there are going to be exceptions to this, but as a general principle, instead of scaling volume up and down in, in one workout, I would scale volume up and down with frequency. And because you're, you're able to then... Right. You know, maintain volume quality in each session. Yeah, and you've spoken about you know people's ability to adhere to a program, volume, frequency, intensity, and you know, RPEs and so forth. But coming back to what we said about exercise selection, um, in a conventional deadlift versus a Romanian deadlift, you know, we I see you know in my experience, I'm sure you see the same thing. People mistake. The fact that, oh, hey, I can deadlift, you know, say 180 kilos for 10 reps, that's more volume, but I can only Romanian deadlift 100 kilos for the same amount of reps, that's less volume. Therefore, conventional deadlift, more volume means I'm going to get bigger. Can you elaborate on Mm -hmm. why a Romanian deadlift, just as one example, is a better exercise for a hypertrophy program than a conventional deadlift? Sure. So I think... For one thing, it's easier to get someone to really emphasize hinging at the hip. Because what you can do with an RDL is you can have someone unrack, and then you can instruct them. The very first thing you do is you drive your hips back. I'm looking over here as if there's someone here. Very so first thing you, you coach, do. You coaching from side. Right. Drive your hips back, and then feel a stretch in your hamstrings, initiate the ascent, and then hip thrust. So just from the cueing perspective, really, I found that it's it's superior. I think with deadlifts, it's just, and I don't want to assume everyone is, you know, the low intermediate guy at the gym who's been training for two years, probably with a bro split and does a lot wrong. But it really seems that with deadlifts, people do people default to like heavy round back deadlifts. And I look at them, and their, their glutes are clearly almost totally inactive. Mm-hmm. And I find that absolutely you can take a conventional deadlift and address those issues, or you could have them men, have them do an RDL and build it perfectly from scratch. So They're is ease of execution the primary thing you're looking at here? Yeah, that's, that's huge. And additionally... I think you're able to get more of a stretch in your hamstrings. You're not deloading between reps. And this gets highly technical really quickly. But to my understanding, and the person to bring on relating to this would be Andrew Vinacci, they're, and this is is to do with motor unit recruitment in the case of heavy load versus light, light load training. You can generate full motor unit recruitment with light training, but the issue seems to be that of whether or not you're, you are activating all motor units concurrently, like at the same time. Mm-hmm. And 
I don't want to make an overly strong claim here, but I'm concerned that in the case of hypertrophy training, in deloading, you might decrease motor unit recruitment in that you are activating the same motor units over and over as opposed to not deloading, fatiguing them more, which would then involve motor unit motor units which would not be involved initially. Now, yep. one could get around this by simply using a heavy load from the get-go, um, but that's that's a reason why I'm hesitant to include exercises where you deload between reps. I think that I think that's it. Yeah. yeah, and what are some other considerations you know that you take into account when selecting exercises for a hypertrophy program? Sure, I think it's it's an interesting question because I've been thinking and talking a lot about this recently and and in some sense it's really simple. It's like what is the function of the targeted muscle? Does this exercise correspond with this? And does it allow you to use first and foremost, is it I guess I would say a range of motion, meaning like if it's not isometric, it's already an improvement. But a significant, you know, if you have two exercises and one has a significantly greater range of motion than the other, I think that's advantageous. Um, I also, I do look at things like uh, tension curves. If I, I wouldn't say that I think too much into that, but um, if there were a scenario where this, the tension curve is just clearly really bad and nothing actually comes to mind at the moment, but perhaps if you had an exercise where, yeah, you... It works the targeted muscle through a full range of motion, but through most of the range of motion, it's not even loaded or something. Yeah. That would be an issue. Um, a lot of it has to do with personal preference. Mm. How well do you tolerate it? As an example, I find it with barbell presses, they just, and I'm not a strong person and I don't go heavier than I'm able to, to do, but barbell presses trash my elbows. Yeah. You know, it, like I'll do them. I get in the groove of them a bit. When I start progressing, it really quickly, just my elbows are done. Whereas with dumbbells, I don't have that issue. And that's, so even if you could generate five fantastic theoretical arguments for a barbell press being superior, it doesn't matter if they're excruciatingly painful. Um, so yeah, I think if you look at exercises regarded as good exercises for any given body part, why are squats good for the quads? Well, you're do, you're obviously performing a ton of loaded knee flexion and knee extension. Um, you don't have some uh, clearly disadvantageous tension curve. You are able to load the exercise safely. You're able to add load. More, you know, there isn't. It isn't as if it's impossible to go above 135 pounds on a squat, and so on. Yeah, and it's. It's safe within appropriate rep ranges, etc. And then you, you would apply that same reasoning against any other exercise for any other body part. Yeah, sure. And you mentioned, you know, how you get elbow pain with barbell pressing, and you know, obviously you have very good self-awareness and prioritize your health. And you've mentioned before that bodybuilders often fail to prioritize their health in pursuit of mm. gains. Um, what implications do you see for those who miss this in the bustle? 
Well, interestingly, the first thing I would note is if someone is aware of this and they literally don't care, then perhaps it's rational for them to behave in that manner. In other words, to, to take, I was going to say an extreme example, but it's, this happens all the time in uh, pro bodybuilding. You know, guys who are, whatever drugs they use and whatever quantity they use that are risking their health, I mean, I don't think they don't know. They just want to be the best. They want to become an IPE pro. They want to get third at the Olympia. They want to win, etc. So if they approach the issue very rationally, then, then I'm not sure I would object to that. Those just aren't my values. But I wouldn't say, well, that's not the way I approach things, so you're an idiot. Mm. On the other hand, if, on the other hand, I wonder how many people aren't really aware of this. In other words, I wonder how many people, if, you know, if something health-related were to come up, their response wouldn't be, oh, well, I know that I've been risking my health, so this is not unexpected. I wonder, I wonder how many people would respond by saying, oh, I, re I didn't realize, you know, how bad this was. So, here's an example, which I think is a real one, at least to some significant extent, of very reductionist IFYM people who just clearly eat large amounts yeah. of unhealthy food. And I don't find that a problematic term, by the way. Um, and... and seem to be under the impression that, you know, really the main thing is hit your macros. I, I think that's, again, if that person doesn't care about their health, then they're just like, I hit my macros and I look good and I lose fat, I gain muscle, whatever the objective is, okay. But I wonder how many people are like, yeah, this is totally fine. You know, they have, they have no concept of, you know, what their diet really consists of beyond, I know, these three numbers. Yeah. You know, they might, they might be, very, you know, this is very often true. In fact, I um, I saw a medical student say online that he's that in practice he has never seen someone not be vitamin D three deficient or vitamin D deficient. Like every single time he's seen a chart, that's been true. Um, so that would be an example of I, you know, I wonder how many people always hit their macros and. And uh, take a cheap multi, and they lift five days a week for an hour and a half, and they think they have all their bases covered. And again, that isn't the person who knows that they don't have their bases covered, but they don't care because it's worth it for them. Rather, this is the person who just doesn't know. Yeah. Uh, and I would, find, I think that's unfortunate. And I think, um, I think these can all be balanced. You know, I don't think it's a either you look amazing and you're unhealthy, or you look terrible and you're healthy kind of thing. I think. It, with fairly modest effort, one can address uh, some of these other concerns that are not related to maximizing muscle mass and decreasing body fat. Yeah, sure. And, you know, to talk quickly about some, you know, nutrition protocols that you've used in the past and so forth, um, when it comes to bulking and gaining mm -hmm. lean body mass, um, what is your personal preference and what do you think to be the best way to approach that in terms of the size of the calorie surplus? Sure. So, a number of thoughts on this. One is, interestingly, I practically never try to calculate 
energy surpluses or deficits. Because in practice, what I found is I, I go directly to what I feel is is more significant in practice, which is macros. So a lot of it has to do with intuition. Intuitively, I know this is the change that needs to happen to generate this outcome. And I've gone to the point where it's actually very rare that it doesn't pan out in the way I expect. And this is for you personally, so, just to clarify? So this is for me personally yep. and, and as a coach. As a so coach. so I, I realize it's, that's problematic when someone asks me, you know, let's say they're eating... 3,000 calories a day and they're maintaining weight and, and they need to know what they should be eating. I'm like, I, I actually don't really know. But with regard to bulking generally, I diverge on this and like it, it might almost sound like a contradiction, but I think for some people, short-term, fairly aggressive bulking. And I say fairly aggressive because the aggressive Aggressive might exactly it might mean six pounds a month. Like there are people, you know, like go all in, eat everything you can see, and that's like twenty pounds in two months. Yeah. So that's not what I'm suggesting. But for some people, I think shorter bulks, more aggressive and focused, mm. are the way to go. Okay. And that that really speaks to the significance of psychology and knowing how someone ticks. And that's had you asked me this question even a year ago, I probably wouldn't have said anything about this, but. Like in my own experience, in the past I did much, much longer bulks, and in hindsight I'm able to recognize that at some point they got very unfocused. And I was just, yeah, I was lifting and yeah, I was eating, but I was, frankly, I was a fat guy who training, but like nothing was really happening in terms of progress. Yeah, that's interesting. And something that I've done differently this year, and this current bulk that I'm doing right now is the one I can think of where I've stayed almost as lean as I was at the end of my cut last year, is I've been very focused about it. I've really tried to treat it. And, you know, this is hard because you're going to have days where you're just extremely tired and you're not going to have good workouts and so on. But I've tried to think of it as really like a contest prep, like every day matters. Every workout matters because, and this isn't just true of me, I've discussed this with others, other coaches in the past, and there is this real phenomenon of people thinking, ah, well, I'm bulking, I'm in a surplus, the surplus is going to do the work, yeah. so whatever. Yeah. And so those people, those people will start cutting and they suddenly start training much more intently. If nothing else, they're more focused. Yeah. So, so that speaks to a, a making a case for shorter bulks, more aggressive. Meanwhile, if you have the person who, you could give them a protocol today and say, please run this protocol until 2034, and they'd be like, okay, sounds good. So that wouldn't be someone, and not only do they say, okay, that sounds good, but they go off and they do it, and it's no issue. I wouldn't think of that person as being someone for whom you'd say, yeah, you should bulk for 12 weeks pretty aggressively and then maybe do a mini-cut. Rather, that might be someone who you say, okay, you competed last year, you're back to a healthy body fat percentage now, you're more or less able to do whatever you want. Okay, you should slow bulk for five years. 
this is, you know, very slow bulk for five years, gain 7.2 pounds of stage weight, diet down. And then you'll be like, sounds fantastic. And so in that context, that would be the, that would be the way to go. And, and so the question becomes, you know, what's appropriate in, in any given scenario? And, mm. and Intrinsic motivation and stuff. I do wonder which is the better recommendation generally, because in the past I definitely would have said slow, very lean bulk, but at this point I'm more skeptical of that. Yeah. And interestingly, by the way, I noticed on Facebook recently, Mike Isretel, I think, is known as being someone who advocates for more aggressive bulks, and, and I would say, you know, for the sake of charity, I, I did see a comment of his where he said that He's updated his views on this, so I think he's more conservative than he used to be. But he even said something like, he isn't sure which approach would pan out better, I think in terms of muscle gain in the long haul. And I think that's a very reasonable perspective. I would say that if I had to bet, the protocol which will work the best will be the one that the person is most involved in. And that they direct the most energy toward. And if we assume that that variable is the same, then I think those two approaches would pan out about the same way. Yeah. That's um, in the long run. extremely interesting. And something I've noticed that you've been paying particular attention to um, of late is leucine. Um, and you've mentioned that the literature suggests there's a maximum, not a minimum threshold by which muscle protein synthesis is increased. Can you elaborate on that and just give us your views on you know, what you think the evidence suggests to be optimal as it stands? Yes, definitely. So a common perspective in the fitness industry, I'm not sure I would say the evidence-based, you know, I don't want to imply that everyone in the evidence-based community is misinformed or something like this, but most people are now aware of leucine and, and leuc the fact that leucine uh, initiates muscle protein synthesis, which is just to say that it starts it. It's not enough to have a prolonged anabolic response. But very often it's said that the leucine threshold is a minimum amount of leucine one needs to consume to initiate muscle protein synthesis. And that's completely wrong. Because that suggests, like, let's really stop and think about what that would mean in practice. That would mean if the leucine threshold is 3 grams, you ingest 2.94 grams, and that has no effect on muscle protein synthesis. And that, that simply isn't the case. There is such a thing as a leucine threshold, but what it is is a maximum threshold above which ingesting more leucine has no additional effect on muscle protein synthesis. So, uh, once again, if we assume the leucine threshold is 3 grams, and there are problems with that, by the way, that I'll come back to, but if it just is 3 grams, if you, that means that meal, they want to be hitting the leucine threshold. I mean, if we want to take it to the extreme of what is theoretically absolutely optimal, I would say hitting the leucine threshold probably 5 meals a day, yeah. based on my reading of the literature that's the number I, I continuously gravitate toward. However, that also means that if for some reason you train and eat five grams of protein after a workout, that doesn't do nothing. I, don't, I would not advise that, but it doesn't do nothing. And indeed, there was a study 
I think this was the study that, that started all of this literature, this research, really looking at the influence of different doses of protein and types of protein, et cetera, ingested after training. Um, and in this study, this, this came out of Stu Phillips' group in 2009, uh, five grams of whole egg protein ingested uh, post-workout significantly increased muscle protein synthesis relative to a placebo. It was, I think it was a 37% difference. So... If you train and then eat nothing, muscle protein synthesis is elevated by the training. Yeah, sure. But if you train and then have five grams of protein, that's a 37% greater effect. Mm, and in effect. bodybuilding terms, five grams of protein is like, huh, what do you mean, bro? Yeah. Whereas 20, and then 20 grams of protein yields two and a half times the effect of that. Okay. So, again, if you want to maximize your progress, yes, hit the leucine threshold, but the, the very simple practical implication is don't fear that if you have 8 or 12 or 18 grams of protein in a meal for whatever reason, that that protein simply isn't going to do anything yeah. or is simply going to get oxidized because the evidence doesn't indicate that's the case. Okay. So I think it's a matter of, you know, yes, there are things you have to do if you want to maximize your progress. But I don't want, you know, lay people who are just trying to make decent progress and who have many other things they're worrying about to to freak out if they're yeah. hitting 17 grams of protein instead of 20 or something like this. And one last thing that I wanted to mention about the leucine threshold because I alluded to it earlier is, from my understanding, it's it's technically conceived of as uh, being on a, a per being reflective of body weight, 0.045 grams per kilogram of body weight. Yep. Now, tipped in at all 2016, which compared 20 grams of protein to 40 grams of protein after a full body session, found that bigger and smaller guys, I don't recall the specifics, but significant differences in body weight, there weren't differences in resulting muscle protein synthesis. Now, that is one study. Yeah. But it's a high-quality study, and it's suggestive of um, protein needs not scaling in the in the way we would expect with uh, with body weight, at least at least in terms of that one metric of yeah. acute muscle protein synthesis after training. Okay, yeah, that's um very good to know for you know those people who aren't you know able to get you know thirty grams of protein immediately after their session, it can put them at ease quite a lot. And something that you've been discussing of late is intuitive eating. And you've mentioned that some structure, especially for you, uh, is more beneficial. Um, but can we truly eat intuitively, Ian, considering our environment, you know, poor satiety signaling, culture, and, you know, our biological drive to consume? Fantastic question. I was just talking to someone about this. I think last night and and I said I I think I've grown to really dislike the term intuitive mm. eating. Likewise. Because <laughs> because what we call intuitive eating, if it works well in practice, is actually appropriately structured eating with intuitive elements. Yeah, less rigid. 
Right. So, yeah. so let's reiterate that because it's really important. It's like successful intuitive eating has rules. Yeah. It isn't get up. Oh, today I want eggs with six donuts. <laughs> and it make, and I real I, I realize that's a you know a, a deliberately ridiculous scenario. But I am reminded of uh, Dorian Yates saying that because. He's known as being very rigid with his training. Like I, I'm, to my knowledge, for the duration of his reign as Mr. Olympia, his workouts were practically identical for six or seven consecutive years. Like the same workouts, the same exercises. Mm-hmm. I think I think he only trained things or changed things rather when he got injured. And he was asked at some point. I think it was in a seminar about intuitive training. You know, going by feel, basically. Mm. And he said, well, if I went by feel, I would go home and drink a beer. Yeah. I mean, seriously. Yeah, like that's true. Like, from a, so, we, so in terms of food, from an evolutionary perspective, that which is intuitive would be eating tons of high-carb, high-fat, very energy-dense food because it's conducive to fat gain, which is will decrease your likelihood of death in case of famine. Yeah. So yes, and, and this is this isn't just you, by the way, or me. You know, saying this, I've had people tell me the same thing of when they get really intuitive. Of for this meal, I want uh, yeah, I want chicken and rice at this meal, but later I want pizza, and then the next day, like there's this new restaurant around the corner. It sounds really good. In other words, the closer one gets to the way everyone who doesn't care about fitness eats, the worse their outcome. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting. I'm going to use this word here, but that's highly intuitive, right? If you yeah. basically just eat like some guy off the street, that's, then yeah. your your results will be closer to that. Now, I think one might respond to this by saying, "Well, yeah, that's sort of obvious, but that's not really what people mean by intuitive eating." Well, that that's really my point. Is if what we mean by intuitive eating is as simple as you don't track your macros, but you pretty much eat the way you do it if you were to track your macros. Mm. And, you know, you very, you know, one day you eat pasta, one day you eat rice, and you vary portions a little bit based on how hungry you are. I think that can work extremely well, but I would note that that, honestly, what I've just described, of all of the dietary approaches out there, that sounds closest to traditional clean eating, yeah. where people are quite consistent, typically weigh their food, but don't track. Mm. Like that actually sounds very similar to what I've just described as being intuitive eating. So in wanting to turn this discussion in, in the direction of what can people do, what's valuable, what's actionable, I would say, re- I made a video entitled How to Stick to Your Diet and yeah, a 16-minute video in which I said, essentially, experiment Try different things, and but not in a free for all. Yeah, not in a non-committal way. What you need to do is come up with an idea which you think is good in principle, and implement it, and really commit to it, and implement it for. I mean, at the very least, a week. <laughs> and and I, I I only say a week because some people really struggle with with sticking to almost anything. Mm. Um, see how it pans out. Be as analytical as you can in collecting data, body weight, how do you look, how do you feel, etc. And then reevaluate in 
if it was clearly fantastic, continue, make adjustments, etc. So for the people who are going to be successful with intuitive eating, again, I think it's going to have many elements that you would see in clean eating, elements that you would see in the person who's tracking every single day. You know, I, for a, a few quick examples, eating around the same time each day, I think that's advantageous. Mm. I think there, to my knowledge, there's, some, there's actually some evidence indicating that that's beneficial toward health outcomes, although that's far outside the scope of what I have good knowledge of. Um, I think hunger, to a large extent, correlates with one's circadian rhythm. Mm -hmm. And this is something I've been, you know, this year I've been way more rigid than, than in the past. And that's something I've noticed is when I get in a rhythm, like, let's say that I, I miss a meal, it gets pushed back, so I eat it later. Even if I've just eaten, I actually get hungry later yeah, because right. that's when I usually eat that next yeah. meal. So so that would be an example of something that would be beneficial when it comes to intuitive eating, eating around the same time, having multiple meals per day, which are the same from day to day. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to think about it. That's time and energy that you don't have to exert to figure out what you're eating. So avoidance of decision fatigue, which is quite literally the fatigue which results from making decisions, yeah. is immense. Because yeah. I can definitely, I mean, this most often, this is such a, just speaking for myself, people might find this very mildly amusing. One of the best indicators for me of whether or not I'm tired, like, not, oh, I'm a bit tired, but like really tired, is if I struggle to make almost any minor decision. <laughs> and I do think, I would, I am sure there are people out there who eat different foods every day and track everything and always hit their macros and they're super happy. But if I had to bet, I would bet that is a minuscule minority of mm. folks. Whereas, again, the person who's successful with a clean, like a very conservative traditional clean eating approach and the person who's successful with IFYM and the person who's successful with intuitive eating, they're, again, there are going to be similarities there yeah. in terms of yeah. their meal frequency is going to be like the meal frequency that works for them, it's going to be quite consistent. They're going to have a pretty narrow set of foods that they enjoy and that hit their macros or are nutritionally appropriate. Um, and then what I, a very specific recommendation I often give people is keep all of your meals the same each day with the exception of one, typically your last meal. When yeah. some, you know, so, so someone will have the day of, school and or work and all, all of the things that go into that and they'll train and through through that period they just have to execute yeah they just this is what i da 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 da, da. and then at the end of the day i don't mean so late that they're falling asleep but i mean in the, the last two hours of the day roughly they'll be able to sit down and, and evaluate and say okay this is where i am relative to where i want to be this is also what i want to eat this is what works yep saving up some calories for the end of the day yeah, that's another component of it as well. And and that, that that is the, in terms of one approach, which I've found to work well for many different people, that would be the approach. Yeah, for sure. And as we draw to the end of uh, this podcast, in, in, you know, your career, you've mentioned that one of the primary motivations for you was contempt, ignorance, dishonesty, especially when it came to misinformation. Um, you know, we've mentioned that you've matured and all the rest of it, but sure. has your motivation changed over time and what is it now, Ian? 
Oh, definitely. So I would first acknowledge that I am contemptuous of misinformation. And I think... Oh, no way. Are you really? Right. Like, huge surprise. Um, Strong, inadvertent imitation of your accent, by the way. I apologize for that. (laughs) That's all. That was really bizarre. Um, (laughs) So I I would still grant that when I see misinformation, it it is bothersome to me. Mm. I would... I, look, there isn't an emotional response. It's more, uh, it's disappointment. Is that an emotion? <laughs> um, but what still really actually gets under my skin is um, when I perceive people as being dishonest, that's still something that really, because I, I think that's that's deeper than just you're wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. Because I see people who every, every day, just even if I scroll Facebook for two minutes, I, I will see a piece of content that I perceive as inaccurate. Um, but if my feeling is that the person is very sincere, it's it's like, you know, maybe I'll comment on it. Maybe I'll message that person and say, hey, here's another perspective. Yeah, here's a way right. to think about this. And and very often people will be like, oh, wow, that, like I really appreciate you saying this. And, and so I wouldn't say I have contempt toward that. You know, someone made an honest mistake. I think much more problematic is is folks who um, are are dishonest, who interact with the evidence inappropriately, who misrepresent it, who make false claims, and I think they know better. But at the same time, I'm it really does like addressing that directly, explicitly, naming names publicly does generate such discord. So my primary focus. So that's all just kind of clearing my throat of acknowledging that's still a thing. Um, but first and foremost, it's what can I do to help people? So very often I, I will see something and I'm like, I'll start getting irritated and I'll catch myself and be like, I have eight, I know for a fact that I have 18 message requests on Instagram. So I could read this and, and be contemptuous of it and get marginally upset i could uh, write a post about it or i could say all right that's always going to be there because it is always going to be there which is um it can can be disheartening the sense of like think of all of what we've done and then you still see uh you know gary taubes going on joe rogan's (laughs) podcast and yeah calling calling birmingham a a little red brick town that was uh, interesting but you know that's always going to be there you couldn't even so remember that, Aragon's uh, claims at the fitness summit a few years back. That that was quite um, concerning. That was really a strange interaction in, mm. in my submission, but really, I endeavor very much to ignore stuff like that. Now I mm. realize. Um, indeed, sometimes people will will send things. That they'll be like, you know, look at this, look at this bullshit that this person said. And I'm, I'm kind of hesitant because it's like that's always going to be there. There are always going to be a thousand pieces of terrible content, you know, relative to every piece of really good content put out by, you know, the gentleman I've mentioned. Um, so I, we could view it from the perspective of, oh, you know, we're, we're perpetually losing, but rather I try to view it from the perspective of um, – to get to get you know really uh, fundamental here, as long as I'm alive and don't have Alzheimer's uh, and have access to the internet, I'm able to go online and read a study and 
write four sentences about it and post about it, and maybe three people would have never seen it otherwise, and they see it, and they benefit from it in some way, and I, I'd say that's worth doing. Yeah, for sure. So, and yeah, Ian, that, that would be motivation. Yeah, that's um, very impressive to see where you've come from and where you are now. It's, it's very motivating, Ian. And how do you, on a personal level, continue to improve your wealth of knowledge? Because, you know, it's very easy to, you know, get to a point and think, oh, well, I know so much, you know, that can, you know, have only this much effect in, you know, changing or improving my training or nutrition protocols. You know, any further investment in time isn't going to yield, you know, a greater benefit to a significant degree that it would be worth spending all that time researching and whatnot. How do you continually stay motivated to learn more, read more, and, you know, continue to do what you do? Sure, I think there are a number of things that go into it. One, one would be that, funnily enough, the word fraud comes to mind. Um, you know, people will tell me, um, and I, I guess it would be accurate to say that you've said this, you know, pe some people in the world regard me as knowing what I'm talking about. Well, I have to back that up. Mm. I can't just be the guy that people think knows what he's talking about. Like, I actually need to pay attention to what the literature says for that yeah. to be a, a genuine I would feel really weird if people were to if my perception was people are telling me I'm great and I actually know I don't read any studies and so that's part of it another part of it is just very genuine curiosity of um, enjoying like I, have, I, I am addictive toward reading. I genuinely display addictive behavior when it comes to reading. I mean, I, like, one of the things that really messed up my sleep schedule from early on in life is I would start a book and I would, I would read until 4 o'clock in the morning as a you know, pretty young child that needs to get up at 6 or whatever for school because I, I literally, on a rational level, I would be like, I need to, you know, I need to stop this because I need to sleep, but it's, sorry, it's too interesting. <laughs> so, so part of it is like compulsive of just, it's so fascinating to me, you know, assuming it, it's some, the topic interests me. And um, there's also, there's also an edge of, you know, realizing how little I know relative to some of the people I uh, look mm -hmm. up to. And, and then even, and this is no criticism of them, but think of the, and you, you know, obviously having a discussion with you, but additionally, everyone watching or listening to this probably has the person who they most look up to in the industry. Like think of how much they know. And that's, it's like very little relative mm. to everything there is to know, even within the scope of one field. The Dunning-Kruger effect, right? The dunning so just to be pedantic for a second, the Dunning-Kruger effect is a form of cognitive bias where some, it's really fascinating. Someone lacks the cognitive faculties necessary to recognize their their lack of cognitive faculties. So I do yeah. think that's very often uh, problematic. But but again, it's putting in perspective, you know, being a genuine expert. Like using using the example of a PhD. Something that people who actually have PhDs will tell you is, I mean, assuming that they're appropriately um, honest about what it means, mm. they'll say, yeah, they, they might be a, an incredible expert in that little sliver of that field that they specialized in. Um, so, so 
again, feeling like I don't want to let people down. Um, just being really interested in some of these topics and, and wanting to read about them and um, also not letting myself think what you described of, hey, I'm smart and uh, I don't need to do anything. I mean, it's it's a real danger, by the way. I don't want to make it sound like it, life is super hard being intelligent, but I think everyone has their own, um, you know, whatever it might be. Like if you're incredibly tall, that gives you an advantage for playing basketball, but it's terrible getting on a plane. Mm. And so definitely a, if, if one is reasonably intelligent, a risk of that can be, hey, I'm intelligent. I don't even know anything. Yeah. I'm just like, you know, like I deserve to be on this podcast. Like I'm just so smart. You know, like there's a real and, – and every single person watching this has met someone like that. Mm. I mean that's who I was five years ago. I'm so fucking smart. I just like, you know, deserve it. I mean, that's really problematic. That's a really problematic attitude. So Your, your answers um, here have almost fed into my next and final question, Ian. This, I couldn't have um, scripted this any better. Um, sure. Is knowing too much potentially harmful and can overthinking lead to indecision when it comes to getting the job done? <laughs> I, I'm loving these questions. But I, I fed him these questions, you, everyone. Yeah. We, we yeah. pre-scripted this. Right. Ian, what I did you want me to ask you today? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, um, definitely is is the short answer. And this has been true of me in the past. I mean, when you... Let's create a hype. Let's say that there's some situation in life, whatever it is. And all you have to decide is if you're going to do this or that. You have two options. Now, let's say that you're in that situation and you know very little about it and just your gut tells you that you should go this way. It's better. Mm-hmm. All right, so you're going to go that way. And meanwhile, the person let, – let's say someone is an, an expert in whatever this decision is, like the expert of experts. They just know everything. They'll just sit there. You know, they there's, might there's sit there options. for like 45 minutes like panicking of like, well, I can give – 16 lines of evidence for why I should do this. I can give 14 lines of evidence over here, but these are, these arguments are more weighty, and yeah, I definitely think that can happen. So, and this has definitely happened to me, so something I really endeavor to do, and it's up to each, each person watching this and looking at my material to evaluate, you know, use their own best judgment, and, and let me know. I'm genuinely curious whether, you know, how people think I'm doing on this, but as an example... When I write posts about studies, something I would have done in the past is I would just read a study. I would, on a very theoretical level, I would find it interesting. You know, out of principle, this is interesting. And I would just read it, and this is what it says. Now, something I try to do, I don't always do it. I don't always remember to do it. I don't always succeed in doing it. But I will say, for as an example, we talked about the leucine threshold. In the past, I might have said, yeah, this is what the leucine threshold is. Next question. Mm. Whereas now, I at least endeavor to say, okay, this is what the leucine threshold is, and and this is what that this is what that means for you in practice. Yeah, I've you know, definitely noticed that. This is how you can take this tidbit mm. of scientific information that you might not, you know, really care that much about. Which, by the way, to each their own. If someone doesn't care, they don't care. It's fine as long as they they don't pretend to care. 
Um, but here, here's the, the practical conclusion for that. So, so yes, again, is the answer. I think it can be um, paralyzing to some extent to, to know a lot about something. And, and so I don't think the solution is to know less or to stop paying attention. I think that would be problematic because you would know less. I'd, yeah. You know, <laughs> but I think I think that needs to be combined with an ability to make quick decisions and to look at all of that evidence and just say, you know, really intuitively, given your experience, given your like everything that's happened, just what is your immediate sense of this is what you got to do? Yeah. So, and, and that's something I've been really focused on for for probably about a year, and it's been really beneficial to me because there are definitely. There are even, to give a simple example, there were times in the past where I would be at the gym and I would need to decide what to do next, and it would be a, like a project of like, yeah. and I mean, I say that, it would, you know, three minutes or something, I'm not saying hours would be spent on this, but, you know, should I do this or that, and this has a different tension curve, and this, uh, this feels a little different on my elbow, and whereas now it's really like, what does my gut tell me? And fortunately, I have enough experience and knowledge that that's usually correct. Um, for the person who who doesn't have that, probably more helpful a suggestion would be to learn more, but yeah. to also always endeavor to to frame that in terms of what can I do with this in practice. Mm. Maybe the answer is nothing, and you just find it interesting, and that's fine. But what you don't want to do is read a you know read a protein dose study today, change what you do tomorrow. Tomorrow, read a different study out of a different lab, and they make a slightly different suggestion. So you change what you do. Again, you you have to to take a step back and put everything in the greater context and try to make decisions on that basis. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you for answering that. It's something I've been wanting to ask you for quite a long time. And it was, yeah, absolute response. Well, Ian, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. We really appreciate your time, as well as sharing your experiences, knowledge, and everything else in between. So on behalf of myself and JPS, thank you, and uh, we'll speak to you next time. My pleasure, Jacob. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Ian.